So welcome to our Wow at Work podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Henry Stewart, who is the CHO, which is the Chief Happiness Officer of Happy Limited, a training company based in London. And he's also the author of The Happy Manifesto, a fantastic book that could help your organization become a great place to be able to work. Henry is also a keynote speaker internationally around the world, an advisor to many other people like myself and other companies about how they could actually transform the world of work for the better. So you're very welcome today, Henry. Delighted to have you here. Thank you, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. Before we start, we're going to go into, and, and I think this time now more than ever, talking about happiness at work, everybody's becoming aware of this. This was something that you had clicked into well before it became fashionable to talk about this. So you had done this a long time ago. Thank you. What was the trigger? What was the catalyst to make you think that being happy at work was... A- well, the trigger was working for a really unhappy workplace. This was, oh, this was way back in 1987 when me, when some colleagues and myself set up a national newspaper, a national Sunday newspaper. We raised six and a half million pounds and we lost it all within six weeks. It was a disaster. In fact, the book about it was called Disaster. So there's an actual book that we can read on this. There is a book that you can read on this, yes, yes. Fantastic. Can you just can you just tell me a little bit about that, how that experience formed the, the way you think and what actually happens to get you to the 6.5, to the six weeks after using up the 6.5 million and how that felt for you? It, it brought me to the, to the verge of a nervous breakdown, to, to be honest with you. And we'd got it all wrong. We were actually quite good, but we decided to take over the management of the company and hire a bunch of journalists. What we should have done was hire a bunch of managers and uh, done the journalists because the, I think the most we knew about management was what we just watched on Dynasty, which many readers won't remember, but it was that um, oil company in, in the States uh, that was on TV and it was certainly not a great style of management went on there or what we'd learned from other people and it, it wasn't good. So what was your next step after that? <laughs> the next step after that was I... I went to work for a pensions investment company, Perk, in, in, in London, and they, they sacked me after 12 days because they said they didn't like my attitude. This is really interesting. So I decided I did like my attitude, and I decided that I, wouldn't, I would not work for anyone else again, and I would work for people who did like. So was the next step then to set up happy? Yes. Yeah, so then I, it was really good because that lunchtime, I had lunch with my dad, and he... He's from Birmingham, so it was quite rare to, for him to be in London. And he said to me, don't just jump into another job. Think about it. Think about what you need. And that really set me on the road to thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I, I wrote a list of all the things I might do and what which I enjoyed and which uh, I was good at and and which how much they paid. And I rejected computer consultancy, which was the highest paid of it, because it was sounded very dull and i went in the end for training and for it training and set up happy computers which the aim of which was to help people enjoy using their software oh fantastic and it's developed into a much larger company today it has indeed i set up on my own and it's it's now a couple of million turnover and we've developed from it into creating great workplaces because we Started winning awards for being, we won one award for being the best customer service in the entire UK. Uh, we won, we were five years in a row, we were in the best 20 workplaces. So our customers started asking us, what is it you're doing? And so we started, uh, we, we moved into the areas of workplace culture and leadership. 
I find that really interesting because you've just talk, talked about the role that you had in, in uh, the newspaper and, and how difficult that process that was. And then the pensions company didn't like the attitude that you had at the time. So you set up your own company. And it's not as if you come from a customer service background, but you did something right. What, what was it that, that, that caught people on to seeing that you guys had great customer service? So, um, I went, I left those two, <laughs> that 1987 was not a good year for me. I left those two businesses and decided that I would not just set up a company to be an IT training company, but I would set up a company that would be a great workplace, that would do the great customer service. That I wanted to see how you uh, avoided all the things that, that went wrong at the other places and how you created a real exemplar. So that was my, my whole intention. And I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of business books. So I read a lot about how you created um, great businesses. I read The Customer Comes Second by Hal Rosenbluth, which is a classic of its time. It was written by the guy who won the Bol, Baldock, Baldrick, something like that, award for the best customer service in the UK. In the no, sorry, in the USA, and as the mess, as the title says, it's about the employees coming first. But the key book I read was Maverick by Ricardo Semler, which I read in 1992. And before that, Happy was uh, a small business with me, basically micromanaging. When I went on holiday, I would ring back each day to check what people were up to. There were only three of us at the time, three people at the time. But and then I read Maverick, which was tells the story of Ricardo Semler and how he took over his business from his dad, a, a fridge manufacturing plant, and how it went from workers being searched on the gate every day to workers have been fully trusted to decide their own targets, set up their own machinery, decide their manage, and even you know, in many ways decide their their salary. And that transformed the culture of happy. That was given that's been given to every member that we've employed since then. And that was the start of our our journey towards trust and freedom. Wow. I do remember reading that book for the very first time as well. I was studying management and I worked for an organization which was similar to Ricardo's. It was a manufacturing organization. And I when I read that book and I was studying at the time, because everyone else had gone and picked another book to be able to choose to for their for their project at the time. And I saw this completely by chance on some library. It was just sitting there and I went, that just looks different. That's not the normal management book. So I pulled it out and I read it and my eyes opened. And like the things that, uh, as you recognize from the book, how he empowered his teams to make decisions on what way they wanted to work rather than told what way to work. I went, that's fascinating. And I got so enlightened and excited about that when I went back into to, to my team on the factory floor and tried to install some of this within a very old organization. So this organization had a really old culture that, that wasn't met well. And I just went, but, but the possibilities that something like what Ricardo is, is teaching us is possible. Obviously, from what he's done, it's only got more successful in and there's companies now that have Sempo, Sempo style uh, leadership training too, as well, which I, I find really interesting. So yeah, so Ricardo and anybody else that, that really you saw as role models that began to transform the way you thought about it. There's a few people. There is, uh, there's, there was a woman called Sh- Sherry Brown, who I used to attend workshops with, who uh, a key direction to me was go make mistakes. And I have. And I did, and that, that stood me in good stead. And as you'll know, Stephen, our philosophy now is celebrate mistakes. Because, because yeah, if it, because a no, a blame culture where people get, get, where people get blamed for mistakes is the worst thing you can have. What you need 
And what I know people like about happy is the idea that you can, that if they take a risk, if they do something and it all goes wrong, that we that we all celebrate it. I love that. And I love that idea. And I, I know it's, I've spoken before about the fact that, uh, that Ben & Jerry's had that flavor graveyard over in Vermont as well. And they got lots of flavors that just didn't work out. But they, they took the risk and they made it. And some of transforms the company and some just um, just haven't made it. I think hazelnut is the one nut that Ben & Jerry's have tried three times to put into their ice cream. And it has failed every time. I like a hazelnut. Yes, yeah, so do I. So I don't know why it hasn't worked with the uh, with Ben and Jerry's, but you find hazelnut three times, but it is it has gone into the graveyard every single time. So I love that different approach that you guys have when it comes to the, the whole concept of the, the way we work. And I like the way that you talked about attitude at the start because the organization, the pensions organization that you went to work for, didn't like your attitude. But one of the things that shines through in, in the Happy Manifesto is high for attitude, trade for skill, and happy do that. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is core. That is absolutely core to our philosophy. So when we hire people, we try not, we try not to ask questions of them, right? In the interviews. So instead, what, what, what we generally do is we hire groups. We bring them in groups of six. Any thoughts why we bring them in groups of six? Six is just a good number. So they can pair off into twos or threes. Well, that's good as well. But most people hire and just bring people in one at a time. The key about six, it was it, one of our key requirements is that people are positive and supportive of each other. That's a key part of the culture, happy. I'm not interested in asking people, when were you positive and supportive of somebody? You, you get a nonsense answer. Um, what I'm interested in seeing is how they are positive and supportive with people. Um, so we bring them in groups of six, say for trainers, and then we, then we train them. We, we show them what we're expecting. Because again, if you don't know what the, your employer is expecting of you, how can you get it right? It doesn't matter whether they've trained or not in the past. We had one trainer uh, in our Liverpool branch who came to the second interview and found that all the other five people were trainers and she wasn't, right? And she almost left, but she stayed and she got the job. And one of the reasons she got the job is actually because most of the trainers out there have been trained in bad habits. And actually, we often prefer people who haven't trained in the past. And then what we do is we get them to train, obviously. We get them to actually deliver a training session. Because we, for years, we would ask people, what makes a good trainer? And they would explain at great length a perfect characteristic of what makes a good trainer. Then we'd put them in front of a group and they'd do something completely different. So I realised there's no point in asking questions, there's no point in people talking about about what may or may not be how they are. But so instead, get people to do stuff. Whether it's uh, training, whether it's customer service, whether it's techies fixing stuff, whether it's managers managing people, get people. Whether I always say, if, if I was going to go to employ a brain surgeon, I'd get them to cut someone up in the interview. I love that because I think we are beginning to 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 change our ideas about what the whole idea of recruitment has been for years, like the normal recruitment, sit across from a table and, and tell everybody what your hobbies are and tell everybody you're a people player and you're a team player and all these different types of things. It's beginning to change. And and have you had any other good examples of what other organisations are doing that sound quite radical when it comes to recruitment? One of my, I've got some favourites. One of my favourites is, what's they called again? Menlo. Menlo, where, uh, which is a coding company. Rich Sheridan is, is the boss. And they work in pairs. So literally, the coding pair works with one screen. And in the interview, they get people to work in pairs, and you succeed if you've made your pair look good. Right? 
That I think that's a great, a great idea. And there's another one I like is the South Bank show. The not the South Bank show, the South Bank in the in in London, where they used to get people to fill out lots of forms on on. This was for this is for ushers for people who actually lead you to your seat. So instead, they got they got recruited people in t- groups of two hundred, and got them to actually do the kind of stuff that you do when you're an usher. And they let, got a completely different set of people. They actually got quite an older set of people because they they instead of the people who are great at filling out forms, they got the people who are great at doing the job, which is what you want. Absolutely, I quite like Pret's approach, which is that they, in the last interview, get people to work in the branch and so you work a day in the branch and then the team decides whether to keep you yeah because they'll know how great you've been doing what you've been doing all that kind of thing and that's another key thing about recruitment use collaborative hiring get the people you're going to work with to to help you recruit i love that and anytime i do walk into press it just feels like a very genuine customer experience and not forced and if it is forced i'm not seeing it so there seems to be teams of people who generally want to give you great service and get you that coffee and get you whatever it is you need to greet you in the morning, like what they've done as well. So it seems to work. Exactly. And sadly, I don't use Pret anymore because they're, because although their service is fabulous, their hot chocolate is naff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to have standards. Yeah. And if that's not working out. But I, yeah, I've always sort of with them as well. And it, it's the same though, isn't it? Uh, with when it came to recruitment for um, the likes of even orchestras for years, the way orchestras have been, wasn't it? And uh, it was back in the 1970s. I think it was 5% of orchestras have female uh, participants and, in orchestras. And then they said, so then they made you put down a curtain or something so that you couldn't see who they were. So it's a completely silent audition it is now. Where, uh, and now orchestras are taking you on the capabilities of your musicianship rather than who you are because we have all these unconditional biases that feed into all this kind of stuff. And of course, if you're only asking questions, that means that you'll get the most, I'm not saying, you, you'll, get, uh, you'll get a particular type of person responding. And actually, I, I genuinely believe that if you get people to do the job, you get more diversity. More diverse teams are better teams, they're cr- more creative. Absolutely. There's lots of, yeah, there's lots of positives for creating that. In this world that we live in at the moment now, where leadership just feels devoid in many places, I think leadership is, is needed more than ever. Absolutely. What, what are the key attributes that you think a leader should have? Or? That's an interesting point. First of all, I, the key thing for me is listening. The key for a leader is to listen. Go out on the shop floor and listen. Attend meetings and listen. There's a point that Liz Wiseman, uh, who wrote Multipliers, makes, is that if you're leading a meeting... If you're a multiplier, you'll talk for less than 10% of the time. If you're a diminisher, you'll probably talk for 30% or so of the time. So it's about stepping back and setting the right framework. So for me, as I try to make no decisions. So I try to make the decisions, have the decisions made at the place that makes sense, the place the people who are closest to, to the customer. And... This is based on David Marquette's story of the Santa Fe submarine where he was commander. And he, in contrast to any other commander who tells people what to do, decided to make no decisions. And because it was then based on 135 people's brains rather than one person's brain, that submarine went from being underperforming to being the best performing submarine in U.S. Navy history. And the same, similar thing happened when I decided to make no decisions. 
we were flatlining at the time at Happy, and we went. We had we had three years of twenty five percent growth afterwards. How difficult was that, though? Because to say to make no decisions, and if I've ever said it to leaders before as well, there's almost like this sort of bulk that goes up or whatever. Go, wash. You want me to not make decisions, not to hold control of things? Yeah, how difficult absolutely. is that to do? Well, it can be do. I'm not a natural at this, to be honest. I quite like telling people what to do. So actually, it's been a long journey for me to get to this point. But you just have to realise, yeah, it can be scary. What, what decision will they make? You know, at, at Happy, one of the decisions they made was to change the prices. Right? So Ben and, and John decided, this is like the advice process, which you see in self-managing organisations. They decided that they wanted to change the prices. And so they took lots of advice. And I gave them advice and other people gave them advice. And then they didn't meet for consensus or even consent because that isn't the way the advice process works. They then took all the advice and decided what they would make the prices. I didn't agree with it. I thought it was crazy. That was, I I decided to step back. And so they put those prices in place. And lo and behold, not many of our customers left. And actually that's been the source of our profitability to date. And I know, like, from reading the Happy Manifesto and what you do at Happy, there's one thing that uh, made a lot of leaders in other organizations like Bulkett is the idea of pre-approval, which you do. So what what, what you do is you're empowering uh, your teams to set their own targets, but you're also uh, empowering your teams to have pre-approval when it comes to certain projects. Absolutely. And my favorite, though some of you may have heard this, is the woman in the cafe at Happy. This is a while back. But a 19-year-old in the cafe wanted to make the cafe a better place and uh, came to us. And what we didn't do was we didn't say, show us a plan and we'll think about it. We didn't form a committee to look at it. What we did do was agreed the budget and agreed she underst- and checked she understood the look and feel of happy. And I saw that for, for the first time once she'd done it. So she decided uh, everything that happened in that cafe and just think how she felt walking into that cafe, three months into her first job, 19 years old, how she felt walking into that cafe. Absolutely. Now, I've seen, I've seen a, 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 a larger example of this in the book about Netflix, No Rules, where a woman called Jennifer Nerva had been at HP. And at HP, she'd had to get a, she got a contract for $200,000 that she was handing out, and she needed 20 levels of approval to get that contract. It took her six weeks of ringing and ringing and ringing people to get that contract. She came to Netflix and and she had a million dollar contract. And she went to her boss and said, oh God, who do I need to approve for this? And he said, nobody. If you think it's the right thing to do, sign it off and it's done. And as Reed Hastings, the guy who founded Netflix says, it's about getting managers out of the way. It's about enabling people to use their creativity and decide for themselves. And that's what pre-approval is about. Now, it's not about, it's not, let me be clear, we're not saying give people complete freedom, right? For me, you can tell people what to do, you can have complete freedom, or you can have freedom within guidelines. And actually, very few people want complete freedom. A few entrepreneurs do, obviously, but most of us aren't anarchists. Most of us want to know the framework we're working within and then be able to have that trust and freedom within that. So, you know, you set clear guidelines. And the point is, if you, in the normal way, where you seek approval at the end and somebody says no, that's because they haven't set the guidelines. 
if they had set the guidelines, you'd know that you that they were there was something they didn't want. Yeah. And I know you've done that uh, happy as well with the website, um, but the guidelines you would have had would you have company logos and company colours, they all mattered. They would be in the guidelines. Absolutely. So on yeah. the website, which in the early days of the website, I was, I would say, oh, we need that. Can we have that? Can we have that? No, take that away. And the person in charge of the website never really felt in charge of the website. This time we decided to pre-approve. And as I say, this didn't mean complete freedom. What we did was we agreed the, the branding. So, you know, they, they, so they couldn't change it purple or something. The branding is yellow. And they were tick the style of the branding. We agreed the metrics, how many people uh, visited the site, how many, what the income was. Uh, Johnny went on the best search engine optimization training we could find. And we also insisted he be talking to the customer. We didn't need to know what the customer was saying, but we needed to know that dialogue was happening. And when I saw that website for the first time, it was the night before it launched. Right, and it either went up or it didn't. And I didn't especially like it. I thought, what's this? And what's this? And what's this? It wasn't what I'd have created. But it was completely within the guidelines. So up it went. And when we got the metrics a couple of months later, uh, the visitors had trebled and the income had doubled, even without my advice. That's a real strength to be able to empower because any leaders here listening today who work for organizations that don't practice what you've just spoken about, pre-approval, empowering teams to come up with their own ideas or their own targets within the workspace, celebrating mistakes, all of the things that we've spoken about, even the likes of when somebody sees the David Marquette video for the very first time about that submarine, they go into shock to think, how in God's name could that be allowed? How could that happen? I've never, there's almost like a pang of anxiety, the thought of actually empowering the teams to be able to make up decisions or make no decisions yourself and they make all the decisions. You just feel like it couldn't possibly work. So there's a great amount of strength in you being able to do that. Well, it's, it's just, I mean, now it seems just obvious. Why would you run a company any, why would you not want to release the capability of your people? And I can tell you, we're not suffering from the great resignation at all. <laughs> because, because people, the people who work for happy, for happy want to stay with happy. Want to stay with happy, you, you absolutely. Have. Yeah. That's fantastic. What are organizations you see that are also doing uh, something similar? Well, there's some fabulous companies out there. They're, the favorite is Burtzorg, which is the Dutch healthcare organization, which is entirely self-managing. So they started in about 2006 with four nurses who wanted to, ch to change the way community care happened. Because you get, you, typically you get a, a, a list of all the people you got to see, you got to spend 10 minutes with Mr. Blogs and 15 minutes with Mrs. Singh or whatever, and it doesn't work for anybody. So what they decided to do was set up a different way of doing it. And they got together teams of 10 to 12 nurses who would decide for themselves how patients would be treated. And that organization is now, started with four people, is now 15,000 people strong. They give the best healthcare in the Netherlands, according to all the ratings. They have been the best employer to work for in, in the Netherlands. And it's an amazing story of people taking real empowerment and delivering truly great patient care. Who wouldn't want to work for an organization? If you were working in whole care, who wouldn't want to work for an organization like that rather than the... Uh... Uh, the way it's at the moment where it feels like a, a quite a stressful environment to walk in with no decisions being made by you, but being made by someone else and told what to do all the time. And that goes back to the Google Project Oxygen where, you know, um, 
when they look for great leaders and what leaders do is they, they, they are power people and they don't micromanage. Yeah, and uh, as, you, as you know from production, the, the lead thing that a great manager does, the first single most important thing that a great manager does is be a great coach. And that's the role we look for as we look for managers. You're not the expert. You're not the person who will tell people what to do. Your role is to be a coach, to build confidence, to help people find their own solution. With that too as well, Henry, is one of the, the, the things that Happy do very well is they look at that. Because there's so many things in society are broken. Like I always think about the whole school system is pretty much broken. Uh, where I would be based in Ireland because we would do in our final year of exams in school. So you're 17 years old and suddenly you're doing seven subjects to do your final exam. And of those seven subjects, you might enjoy possibly two, three, maybe at the most, but there's four that you don't. And with those four or subjects that you don't particularly like, you're going to have to get tutoring or grinds to get yourself, you know, better at them because you need to get better results in it to get yourself across the line to get the university place or college place that you wanted. So to me, it seems like a waste of time trying to focus on what you're weak at and the things you don't enjoy because you don't get to focus on the things you're good at, the two subjects that you really enjoyed sitting in because you're focused now trying to fix the broken ones. And and I think in the workspace, uh, we've begun to realize that when we get people to play two strengths, we're, we're just better. Pe- teams are better. People feel better about the role that they're in. And I know that's one thing that you champion. Absolutely. And, and coming back to the students, there's I often ask people, if you're a parent... And uh, little Johnny has got AAACF. Which one do you focus on? And it, apparently 82% focus on the F. Rather than saying these are all the things you are really great. So as you know, we do, we do Strength Finder and that discovers our five key strengths. And we have that on our organisational chart, whatever it is, five key strengths. And to explain this, one of my strengths is woo, which means winning others over. So take me to an exhibition or trade show and I'm in my element. I'm loving it. I'm meeting people. There might be a couple of happy people at the back who are a bit shy, but I'm having a great time. I'm I'm chatting to people. Um, I'm filling out the forms. So at the end of it, I come back and I put the forms back on, on, on my desk to ring the next week, which is quite an important thing to do if you're going to make anything out of that trade show. And you know what? I'm not so good at that bit. So you probably guess what we do now. Instead of me ringing up those people, I get somebody else to ring up those people. And now that's easy because I'm the boss. But let's say I wasn't the boss. Let's say my job was to organise the exhibition, staff the exhibition, follow up the exhibition. And I might say to my boss, oh, I'm not so good at that last bit. And my boss might say to me, we all have to do things we're not so good at. Which is the equivalent of saying we all have to do things which make the company less effective. So at Happy, we wouldn't do that, even if, I, even if it wasn't the boss. We recruit to a job description and then we throw it away. And we work out what people's actual talents are. So one of the things that often happens at Happy is a team will put all their jobs up on the wall and then choose which ones they want to do in the next six months. And it doesn't matter what you've been recruited for. If that's not what you're good at, get to do something else instead. What it's actually doing then is, and, and I suppose doing that exercise with your staff, you're empowered and in the involvement of what all the job roles are. And somebody would actually look at a role that was on that board and go, yeah, I like doing that. Somebody else is going, you actually like doing that? <laughs> who likes doing that? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so at that exhibition, they are people who hate doing that. 
hate chatting to people or uh, new people or whatever. And there, there are other people who you were quite happy to ring up those people afterwards and quite enjoy doing that. Yeah. So there, yes, exactly. Uh, we all like different things. It's very empowering when people find about what their strengths are, because I've got Woo as well, and I've got a couple of others. And I know that I, like you, Henry, I love coming up with ideas. I love chatting with people, but I haven't got the bit in the execution. Um, so it's like you, when I come back with all the forms, with if, where are the forms going to go? I need someone else <laughs> with the forms. But it's, but it's a good realisation, isn't it? And until I did that, for years, I was like swimming around this. Why is it just not? Why is the idea not getting fully formed? Why is the idea not getting fully and it's simply because that if I had somebody on the team around me that was going to have been able to do that, that the whole project just went where it needed to go. Exactly. And I think, yeah, great organizations allow for that as, as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and Gallup, rec- who, who does a strength finder form, reckons that if people do work to their strengths, because very few do, particularly in the UK, um, in the UK, only one in six are able to answer yes to, to every day I get to do what I am best at. But though where they do that, they're 30 to 40% more productive. I don't know if you read that great book by David Graeber. David sadly passed away the last year or so and called Bullshit Jobs, and a theory. And it's just really interesting. And just from the correspondence that he got, the amount of people that actually had roles that made no sense whatsoever. It was almost roles <laughs> that were made up by leaders and organizations that wants to feel powerful. Yeah. And that sounds fun when somebody says to you, actually, there's very little work to my work. Oh, God, you get to sit around all day. That goes really quickly. That excitement suddenly turns into absolute emptiness and they go home like empty shells and they're trying to fill a 40-hour week when there's only two and a half hours of real work to do in that. And and the, yeah, and it's, it was just so sad to hear that we've created many of these roles that actually fill into this rather than the company saying these are roles that have definite amount of purpose. But purpose is so important when it comes to your experience at work. Purpose and pleasure are the two things that make us happy. And if we can get pleasure and purpose and work at the same time, the last two years have been really difficult for lots of organizations, including Happy and, and, and everybody else. And what we've come to get to this point, do you think that people are beginning to redefine what they want from the world watch? Yes. I mean, that, that's obviously what this great resignation is about, people deciding they can leave work and they can live their lives another way. So I think, you know, a lot of people will be wanting to work from home more, obviously. It'd be interesting to see those companies who are determined to get people into the office, how that works. I'm told by recruitment people that the, you get twice as much response to a job that, where you're able to work from home than you do to one where you have to be in the office. So these people will begin to realize that people want to do that. They want to have a different lifestyle. And obviously the four-day week is is coming. It looks like it's starting to come in. We're going to be discussing it at our staff meeting next week, whether we can work. I, I really want to work towards a four-day week. <laughs> the irony is that some of my staff seem less sure. But that's. I think that's on the way in. And I think certainly in 10 years' time, the four-day week will probably be the norm rather than the exception. You brought a pilot in, didn't you, at one stage for the four-day week during summertime? Yeah, we did. We did a pilot in August. So a really great time to do a four-day week is August. Admit there's some people on the holiday, but there's there's not a lot going on. And what we found was that a majority, not everybody, but a majority did say they were able to do as much in four days as they'd done in five days before. So it seems to me to make just make common sense. Obviously, you end up ditching some of the things, like some of the useless meetings, some of the things that you that that didn't make sense for, but that's a, a good focus. I think it is, yeah. Andrew Barnes, who we, we both spoke to as well from the company Perpetual Guardian, who brought this in in around 2017, 2018. And they've done a really good job and he's consulting with other companies about how they can go about creating the four-day week. 
And one of the things that he said is it, it, it shouldn't be a forced thing. There will be people within the organization that will want to turn up for five days a week and do five days and because it's, they're getting something different out of work than what everybody else is expecting. And you've got to honor that. And he also said what was really interesting because his organization, their four-day week isn't Fridays off or isn't Mondays off. It's a mixture between that. It could be a Tuesday or it could be a Wednesday. And he said at first, employees that had been given a Wednesday off or a Tuesday off went, what am I supposed to do with it? What, what will I do? And then it, when he came back to them, only a short while later, I think it was three or four weeks later, I'd asked him the same question. Well, how do you find this? Well, I don't know how to survive without having this day off. <laughs> People quickly fill time with things. Yeah. Whether it's hobbies, activities, or other, you know, choices that they make, whether it's volunteering or being around the kids. And it's almost like the genie is out of the bottle now when it comes to the world of work because now remote working. If you, if three weeks before March the 20th, uh, was pretty much when everything, 20th, 2020, when everything fell apart. If three or four or five weeks before that, you'd gone into your boss and you said, listen, I'm looking at the whole idea of possibly working remotely. He probably would have looked at you and said, what? You, off your rocker. Nobody would be working remotely. No, I think I, I think I could be very productive from working at home. He says, don't be so ridiculous. And then within six weeks, it was forced. But in three weeks or so, it was forced. And suddenly we all learned how to work remotely. Now we know how productive we can be or how happy we can that, be. That was never the case of happy though, Stephen, because I, re- I remember back in about 2019, somebody coming into the office and, and there were five people in the office and, she's, and she said, where's everybody else? And I said, I've got no idea. You know, because I'm not looking at what they're doing or anything like that. It's that they'll be doing something productive wherever they are. And it's fantastic. Yeah. That empowerment just, just drives so many different things that, that, that you don't need to feel like you need to check where everybody is. So do you think the four day week, I know they have done it in Iceland as they have at the moment. I, did, I think they did about five years of it, which 2,500 civil service workers, and it seemed to have worked quite well. Uh, they've done it with them, and they've also a Unilever now trying to do it in, in New Zealand at the moment with the help of Andrew Barnes on this. I think it's really interesting because I talked to some school students only uh, last week about this. So I talked to school students about some other stuff. And while I was there, I said, you're the future leaders and the employees that are going to come into workforce in a couple of years time. So you're the guys that are, that, that are going to go into a world of work that hopefully will be different to what your parents experienced or what your grandparents experienced. And I explained to them the idea of the concept of the four-day working week. And as of course, they're going to put their hands up. We have a discussion about it, about the, how could that possibly be that you could work four days a week? And I said, to, and you will get paid five days a week if that's the case in some organizations, whatever way your organizations. And then we talk about universal basic income. And then we talk about flexibility within the workspace. And then we talk about all the other things that I generally talk about when it comes to workspaces. Because I said, your generation are completely different. You've more information available to you you're less likely to put up with what your grandparents put up with in the working space. Nobody's going to work in a coal mine any longer if they realise that they could probably work in a wind farm. And that's got a completely different, you know, uh, route altogether. But they're both energy-based jobs. And I had one kid talking about he wants to be a lorry driver. I said, really? Is there going to be lorry drivers in 10 years' time? Are there just going to be self-driving cars? So do we need to reimagine the world of work for for all of us? Now, what do you see ahead then? What do you see ahead for the world of work? How big do you think it's see a change? What are the big differences for organizations now if they want to do what you have done and happy and retained your staff and you don't have problems with the great resignation? What are the, the key things that people think need to put in place? They clearly need to put in place uh, a culture of trust and freedom. So what people don't like is blame cultures, micromanagement, being told what to do. What they do like is, as we said, doing something you're great at, having the trust and freedom to do it well. 
having a manager who coaches rather than tells, having uh, a no-blame culture, ideally celebrating mistakes, and flexible working, and possibly four-day week working, and put those in place, and you'll have a happy, productive workplace. And I'm hoping that's what the future is. I'm hoping the future will be that, but who knows? They, they are some grotty com- leadership and companies out there, so who knows what the future will hold. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to chat with you about how we can create workplaces that are happy. Is there any last thing that you want to finish on and share with, with our listeners uh, about the world of workplace happiness? Well, I want, I, I want your listeners to go away and do this, right? It's like one, one of my colleagues went to his finance director and said, I want to create a happy workplace. And the finance director said, what? I, uh, why do you want to create a happy workplace? What I want to see from you is A, B, and C. And so my colleague said to him, oh, okay. So if I deliver you A, B, and C, it doesn't matter how I do it. And the finance director said, no, of course not. I want A, B, and C. Um, so the, the, my colleague went away and created a happy workplace. So don't, don't limit yourself. Work out what, if you're running a company, then go hell for leather for this kind of stuff. If you're not running a company, work out what it is that the bosses want, but deliver it through creating trust and freedom and a happy workplace. Do all of that and feel free to come and chat to us. You know, we can help you create a happy workplace where, which can be far more productive. In the short space of time, if you join the Happy Workplace Leadership Program that Henry's Happy provides, you'll find that you will be the one making no decisions within about three or four months, which is empowering and scary at the same time, but it's the way forward because you're empowering the team. Great leaders make people Absolutely. feel good about themselves. Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. Making people feel good about themselves. Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure knowing you even up to this point, because I know myself and yourself, I think it was about 2013 I first met you in the Google offices when you did the Happy Workplace Conference then. I think the book had just come out at that time. And you'd done your first Happy Workplace Conference. Um, it was the one, first one I'd been to. And I've been to all the subsequent ones since. Now they're online. Absolutely. As well. So when is your next online one in London? The next online one in London is May the 12th. May the 12th. So that's not far away at all. It's not far away at all. Do check in for it. You can find it on our website, happy.co.uk. And there'll be some fabulous speakers and some great interaction. It's virtual, by the way, that one is. And But our virtual conferences, people find even more engaging than our real ones because we have tons of breakouts. You'll get to meet many, many people. You'll probably get to meet uh, a third of the conference in breakouts. It's fantastic, yeah. And that six hours feels like it's about 60 minutes, to be honest. That's how fast it goes. It's so engaging. It's so so exciting. Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend the, the morning talking to you as well. So thank you so much for all the great work you've done in creating you know, a world of work that's very different to the world of work that we expected for so many years. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking part. Thank you, Stephen. It's been fabulous. Thank you.